How's it going, everybody? Welcome back. Very excited to republish today's episode. It was actually, I believe, episode 201. And I have got Chris Carlson, the founder and owner of Sport Tech, on the show. And he's going to be telling us his story about what it was like selling to private equity and all of his experiences. I'd say the entire theme of this interview is how important education is to understand how valuations work, how the different exits work. And then, even more importantly, clarifying what you want long-term and why and how that reconciles against your financial targets and your options. Because Chris has got some different things he wish he would have done differently and things he wish he would have known. So I think it's important that you listen to his story and you take away how important it is for you to clarify what you want and how the financials and valuations and exit options work. So I'm very excited for you to take a, a listen into this episode. The reason I republished it is because there's so much private equity activity and there's so many narratives out there. I was just done uh, with a, a Vistage tour and everybody's like, oh, private equity is great or oh, private equity is bad. And it's like, well, it's actually about your expectations and what you wanted and what the experience actually, uh, what was like that was unfolded and how that reconciled against what you wanted. So I think it's important hearing stories. And then again, if you're interested in diving more in and creating this proves why education is so important. Go check out the Intentional Growth Starter Kit, which is going to get you access to the five videos on the five intentional growth principles, as well as the financial scorecard where you get a grading on how well you're running the company like a financial asset, as well as the five videos that I walk through a case study and how to project out the value of your company. So you can understand like, hey, if this is the future equity valuation over time, then you can lay around what you want and that you should have some clarity of how your plan is going to unfold because you've got clarity on the financials as well as the intangibles. So I appreciate everybody for tuning in and I hope you enjoy this episode with Chris Carlson from Sportech, which actually, little note what the Sportech was and why you're going to be so excited about this is Chris legitimately started building the plastic uh, shields for windshields in front of snowmobiles in his oven in the 90s, grew the company up to over 100 million in revenue doing plastic injection molding, working with Polaris on their side-by-sides years in advance, created one heck of a company as well as a financial asset, and it's one heck of a story. So I appreciate you tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this interview with Chris. Good morning, Chris. How are you? Doing great. How are you? Doing good. I'm um, looking forward to, to this interview um, more so than most because uh, as I uh, heard the news that you had um, you decided to pull the rip cord and I shot you an email, your email back shed a lot of color that um, I have been <laughs> preaching for a couple of years now. So it was I could I could feel the, the juicy passion there. Sounds like uh, we were going to have plenty to dive into here. And so for the listeners that are not familiar with you, sports like your business and kind of your journey, I think, you know what, I love to see, like, let's go back, like how or why, or was the, there an accident and how you became an entrepreneur? Let's kind of start with like how that happened and what was the business that you, that you were in? Yeah, uh, certainly not an accident. I think the, my story is similar to many, including years where I was raised in an entrepreneurial environment. And uh, I'm very thankful for that. And I'm trying to do the same with my kids. But yeah, my my father and I uh, started together and, and my dad was an industrial designer and a wild eyed entrepreneur. And uh, we're passionate snowmobile enthusiasts. And, you know, we it literally uh, the, our first product uh, was developed on the side of a rutted trail in northern Minnesota, came up with an idea for a little headlight cover for 
snowmobiles that kept uh, snow, ice, and debris out of this uh, recessed headlight area. And uh, we literally fabricated it out of a piece of cardboard that night and thought it might work and prototyped some parts and took them to a, a swap meet and sold every single one we had and, and thought maybe this is a business idea. So that's kind of, <laughs> that was the impetus of, of sport tech. And my dad was approaching retirement age so early on as we started getting distribution channels established and I started talking to OEMs he's like oh wait a minute this is I was looking for a little home-based business for a little extra cash something to do so so I, I bought my dad out real early we're still home-based and uh, and then developed it and, and we started in the snowmobile industry exclusively uh, accessories started selling to aftermarket but almost immediately captured the attention of the OEMs and and um, was able to get, get a relationship established with them. And uh, as the business grew in the early years, we diversified from the snowmobile industry, which was really uh, in a free fall. You know, the, the, the size of the, the industry was falling uh, rapidly. So we, we start branching off into ATVs and eventually got into motorcycles and side-by-side -side utility vehicles. And uh, that was the piece, the side-by-sides that really, uh, really created opportunity for us. So we pivoted to within about 10 years of the beginning to 100% OEM. So we were a tier one supplier to the major OEMs in the power sports industry, started with uh, cabin closures for side-by-side -side utility vehicles. So around 2001 to 2005, when that industry really took off, we uh, we were building the roofs and the windshields and, and door systems, complete enclosures, selling, designing and, and, and selling directly to the OEMs. And towards the end, we had expanded into agriculture and transportation and material handling, but we were cab enclosure experts. And, you know, that's uh, what... November we closed and uh, so it's still pretty fresh and we were we were the largest uh, in the country in that space and you know we were about 140 million in revenue um, how many and, uh, we had about 400 employees so yeah. and and like I want to go back to because you know and I appreciate the the, the context you get it helps as uh, people who can now like pay attention to the story because I think there's some interesting um you know maybe we can cover a couple of things on the growth part Chris because I think you know yeah. from just watching the sidelines of knowing some of you and your friends and hearing some of the like the, you know when you said the challenges of it like you had some pivots and some diversification I think yeah. you know before we get to the point of when you sold some of the growth pains that you guys had because I think you know as you and i, I think was it a few years ago you'd even said in your office of like how you're trying to diversify away from certain things because you yeah. understood value creation and i think kind of teeing this up is i not a lot of entrepreneurs think about value creation long term they're kind of focused on annual income and distribution so like what were some of the big milestones as you were growing of like some big challenges and how did like you know how did you morph along the way well, great question, by the way. You know, I think that one of the biggest challenges for a lot of entrepreneurs is you jump into an industry because you're passionate about it and you have some content expertise. And that was the case with us. I mean, I was an absolute power sports fanatic and specifically 
a snowmobile nut. So our first products in those early years were all directed at snowmobiles and they were they, I mean, they were great products. We had, you know, tremendous success, rapid growth. But an interesting thing happened. My passion for the industry didn't go away or decline in any way, but the industry fell apart. So as we started, there were a number of businesses that started up in the aftermarket of the snowmobile industry. And this is around uh, 92, 93 in that era, they were building four, 500,000 snowmobiles a year worldwide. The industry was strong. All of a sudden it starts to decline. It went into a free fall through the mid, you know, mid to late nineties. It got to a point, you know, where there were only 125, 150,000 snowmobiles sold. So it completely changed the industry wow. and we yeah. were able to pivot with it. And for me, you know, it, it, it became fairly obvious that if we didn't change, if we didn't start working on products and designing products for ATVs and motorcycles and other areas where I had passion, but not the e not equal to what I had for mm -hmm. snowmobiles, had we not done that, the business would have died. And as I look back on it, a lot of friends that I had and uh, in competitors that started their businesses roughly the same time we did, early 90s, they're gone because they refused they were either unable or unwilling to pivot away from snowmobiles. And um, it was a, really a hard lesson for a lot of us. And, and I'm glad, very thankful uh, that, that we did it when we did. So, that, I mean, that was that's one of the big things that really stands out with me. And I see that today with friends of mine that are in businesses. And I'll say, hey, you're, it looks like your market is, is, is declining. Yeah. Have you thought about diversification? Well, no, because I'm a... I'm a guy that this is my deal. This is what I'm passionate about. And say, like, well, you might want to. <laughs> I'm, really I'm really passionate about floppy disks. So what, yeah. What's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, now you're, yeah. now you're called a, you have an owl museum. Well, it's interesting because our old yeah. business in the print, I mean, it was, the print was declining 25% a year. I mean, you, and it's interesting, mm -hmm. like as you're doing this, like, you know, there's certain like tell, you know, uh, leading indicators, like how, like what was the dialogue with your, your, you, your team inside your head? Like when you're look, when you're watching the free fall happen, what was the, what was the conversations going on? How did you handle what you like the, the, the direction that you were going to pivot to? Well, I, you know what, I, um, I love what Collins introduces in, in uh, I think it's in Good to Great. He talks about some of the best entrepreneurs that he ever worked with uh, had a trade called productive paranoia. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, I, I was paranoid. I mean, I, I, it's, I'm looking at my business. We're 100% invested in, in one space. And I'm looking at the size of the market and the size of the opportunity declining before my very eyes. Yeah. And we were, we were rabid enthusiasts. We raced snowmobiles. We trail rode snowmobiles. It was my family. It's what we did, right? So I knew the business, and I watched it closely, and I could see the decline. I, I'm going to these national dealer shows, and I'm watching – as it, it's literally falling apart before my eyes, dramatic drops. Uh, we went through periods where, where it didn't snow in, in the Midwest and mm -hmm. in key markets and, and dealers were not selling snowmobiles. So yeah, I think for me, it was just a smack in the side of the head with a two by four. Right. And uh, it's like, we either make a change now or we're going to be in huge trouble. And I'm so thankful that we did. And it was, you know, to be honest with you, it wasn't that difficult. We took the same passion from a design standpoint and put it into these other spaces that were growing. So at the time, uh, ATVs were exploding and we, and we started designing, you know, 
components for these ATVs that were very similar. They were molded plastic components for um, ATVs and eventually motorcycles. And and um, and it was, uh, you know, I, I look back on it and it was the right thing to do. I'm just very thankful that uh, the old two by four to the head occurred because I, uh, <laughs> it's hard. It's hard because it would have been easy for me to say, well, I'm not going to build parts for motorcycles or ATVs because I'm a snowmobile guy. And I think people would have said, yeah, I get that. But we would have we would have uh, ridden it right to the bottom. And today, that industry, it, it, you know, it exists, but it's about a hundred thousand units worldwide versus five hundred thousand when, when we started. started. So, yeah. Chris, that that two by four, I think, is an interesting. <laughs> I love the analogy, but like, and as you look at the journey of an entrepreneur, I think there are multiple two by fours that happen if people come out the other end, and that that goes from you know you're a snowmobile guy, and now you're you have to be something else, right? So you have to change your passion. And did you start approaching the business differently? So did you become more like an entrepreneur? Like, okay, now this is about making money and staying in business. Or did you follow your passion? Like, how did you get into those different markets? Because I think, you know, as we progress the, the your, your story is, I think that at some point, there's another two by four where it's about creating value and sustainable and predictable and transferable cash flow at some point, which could yeah. be you know, it could be selling two by fours and snowmobiles yeah, and yeah. all this. But like, before we get to that, which kind of gets into your eventual sale, like how did you start approaching the business differently from a, from the visionary perspective of where you were going? Well, that's, that's a good question too. I, I'll be honest with you. The, the passion component, um, is what drives me. It, it was driving me from the beginning and it does today. But, uh, there's a common sense component that, that I think came into the picture here. I was, uh, I was in my late twenties. I had two little babies at home. So I was an entrepreneur and this wild-eyed, uh, passionate entrepreneur, but I needed to, I needed to uh, needed put money. groceries on the table. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right? right. I mean, yeah. this wasn't a hobby where I could just do this and then casually walk away. This is how I was feeding my family. So back to the, you know, the, the, productive paranoia. I'm very thankful for that instinct that's like, Hey, this something smells here. So I'm glad, but I think the core, you know, what we established in those very early days is how we were going to run our business, how we were going to treat people, how we were going to treat our employees, that the culture that we started when we had just half a dozen people existed right to the end when we had 400. I'm thankful for that. That didn't change. The fact that we're passionate. When I first started my business, I would only hire wildly passionate snowmobile enthusiasts. If you didn't ride thousands of miles a year, if you didn't know the product, if you didn't race, I wouldn't even hire you. And I, and I, back then I thought it was because snowmobile people are just the coolest on the earth. And I, while I still believe that, I, I realized today that what I was looking for is is drive and and passion that that people that are driven that wanted to participate in a in a industry that they love so we kind of had to you know pivot on that we still look for passionate people at the end but I had you know obviously people that had never seen a snowmobile before mm-hmm. um, so we learned we learned a bunch but the other thing too I think that really sticks out is I learned very early on the importance of differentiation if you if you don't have a highly differentiated model, you become a commodity supplier. And in the spaces in which we were participating, uh, that's, that's, it's bad news. So we so what was really, your focused, what was your differentiation? We focused on design. So from the very beginning, we had intellectual property in it. 
every product. So we were, we were the opposite of a contract manufacturer. We came to the OEMs and brought ideas to them. And that's how we got in the door. And that's how we maintain that relationship right to the very end versus participating in contract manufacturing. I mean, we never got a print sent across to us with an RFQ. We wouldn't even know how to do it. So we were we were very, uh, very innovative. We had to be our, our existence dependent upon it. And that's really how we structured the business. So at the end, you know, we had intellectual property at some level, whether it be completely ours or shared on 95% of our products. And, wow. and that was the way it was all the way through. And that was that was really the key for us. So whether it was a snowmobile product, UTV, at the end we were building you know cabs for forklifts and for different vehicles of all shapes and forms. The key for us was that we owned the intellectual property. We came to these OEMs with a solution, and that's really what really what drove the growth. And it it started with snowmobiles, and I thought it had to be about snowmobiles. And at the end, what it really turned out to be it was it was about value creation through design okay so there you you just i i think we just hit it there because i um you know i think if i would have asked you what business were you in that would have been the design business and then obviously you made the this the stuff because i think there's there's this challenge i think when you know and where this uh, question comes from chris is you know in strategic planning and there's a lot of eos listeners and traction people business that run traction and and yep. that's not a strategic plan, right? It's like, what business are you in? What is your differentiator? And yep. you guys were designing, right? So that like, and that, that's what I'm kind of getting at here is that like that allowed you to look at the different markets differently, right? Versus just saying yep. I'm a snowmobile company, right? And an enthusiast. Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, you're right on. We It's interesting because we were uh, one of the top 20 uh, thermoformers in North America. We were one of the largest thermoforming companies um, you know, in North America, yet nobody really knew that. I mean, we <laughs> right. molded, we vacuum formed plastic in large volumes. I mean, we had plants full of equipment. We bought millions and millions of pounds of plastic. But if anyone ever asked me, what, so what do you do? We're a designer, uh, you know, we're designers and engineers uh, who happen to mold some plastic. I mean, it's it, way different, being a thermoformer, right? didn't differentiate us. And, and I say to this day, we had competitors that were as good or better than us at molding plastic, right? I mean, they could, they beat us on price all the time. Uh, they were very capable, but they didn't have design capabilities. That's what we did, you know, Right. Um, and and we, what's, you know. what's interesting, Chris, is like I've actually I've given an example and and correct me if I'm way off here. But like when I was because there's people that have job shops that I that I work with or people that have been on the show or whatever. And sure. like when I explain like because they're like, well, how do we differentiate? How do we get like a monopoly or, you know, protect our cash? flow? I, I literally used to tell the sports tech example. I said, well, there, there's a company I know that would take their designers and they're building the, the next year's model before anybody even knows. <laughs> so yeah. it was just like, yeah. so maybe get, get explain like a little bit more about the design then we can keep going to the growth. Cause I think like, so you like, correct me if I'm wrong, right? You had like your designers were working with these, uh, these manuf- these man- OEMs and manufacturers of designing the products before they went to market. I mean, years before they even came out. So you're not getting an RFP and just bidding on the price. No. No, we didn't, we didn't, you know, we didn't do quotes, right? So, yeah, so we, we were working with these OEMs oftentimes uh, two and sometimes three years on, on products, uh, you know, two and three years before they came out. And, and again, we were working on accessories, primarily accessories, sometimes production components that 
that were used on these vehicles. So if you picture, uh, you know, a side-by-side, a, a new John Deere Gator or a Polaris Ranger, they don't come with a complete cab typically. Well, they did at the end, but they, they typically come, you know, as an open uh, ROPS, right? So there's a rollover protection system, but no doors, no windshield, no roof. And they would, they would you know, present us with CAD on these vehicles, and then we would present them with concepts and what it might look like to put a, an enclosure on a vehicle that, by the way, was inherently designed not to have an enclosure. So that was very challenging <laughs> from a design that. standpoint. But then uh, I think the critical part of that for us, and I think the message that I share with a lot of entrepreneurs looking to differentiate is, you know, you don't just walk into, you know, any one of these major OEMs and say, hi, uh, I'm, I'm wildly creative. You got to let us design some parts for you. (laughs) You build, you build trust. And so a lot of people, when they hear our story, how we started in the aftermarket and then you know, transformed into being an OEM supplier. That was a necessary transformation. We actually got called by these OEMs when we were selling into the aftermarket and, and kicking butt. They're saying, hey, uh, we see what you're doing. You might want to come see us, right? That's kind of how you get in. You, you know, you could beat on their door till you're blue in the face, but if you haven't proven yourself. And then I think those early years, it was about earning trust with these OEMs, showing them, demonstrating to them what we could do, and then also demonstrating that we can scale with them. So we went from a garage operation to within, you know, a very short period of time, 20 and 30 million in revenue. And we had, you know, I'll never forget when I bought my first seat of uh, SolidWorks CAD. I mean, it was a big deal. And, you know, uh, before long, we had, you know, a dozen and 15. And at the end, you know, we had, you know, probably close to uh, 50, mid 50s, 55 seats. So you have to be able to scale with the demands of these OEMs. And that's hard, especially for smaller businesses to be able to, to prove and earn that trust that, hey, I, you know, not only can we do this, but we can scale with you and keep up with the demand. So question, a couple of questions on that is scaling up and keeping up with the demand. So like I've done a couple of podcasts recently about, you know, how growth consumes capital and some people mm-hmm. struggle as they're growing between, you know, the AR being too high and like their, their vendors screwing with them or clients. And then also management team constraints, all these different things that make even just, you know, really ha- like fast, natural growth, really, really hard. Was there anything that you did that you, you know, you're like, okay, that really helped because did you have any partners before you sold that you were, it was a sole, you were a sole owner, correct? Yep. Sole owner. Yep. No partners. Cause and, so many, yeah. so many times people like give they go out and they find, you know, minority capital partners because they don't know how to handle that whole situation. Yeah, no. And I see it. And that, and we certainly felt that at times when, you know, we were gaining traction and, and growing, you know, uh, you know, that we had, we had, compound annual growth rates in the mid thirties, uh, you know, for several stretches there and just to cash flow that kind of growth in manufacturing, when you're adding plants, people, equipment, I mean, it's, it's significant. Um, I, you know what? I, I just, I think part of this was just by luck and part of it's just how I was raised. I'm not a debt guy. I, and it's kind of old fashioned in this era when all we talk about is how you can lever this and lever that. I just kind of, this simple concept of not spending more than you earn. I know that's odd, but uh, <laughs> that's, that's odd. how I started, <laughs> you know, and, and, yeah. and I, I'm very blessed now my family and we're able to do things that I'm just uh, blown away. But, you know, I didn't do that when I was building my business. And there were times when I remember we were 
40, 50 million in revenue. And I had everything, every chip I had in that business. I didn't have 401k. I had no investments. I lived in the same house uh, that my wife and I bought uh, after we were first married for 23 years. I had employees that lived in nicer homes, had more money in the bank than I did all the time. And, <laughs> but as an entrepreneur, I'm betting on myself. And I remember specifically hiring my first fancy pants MBAs and, and listening to them talk about their rolling over their 401ks and they came from these big blue chip companies and, and I appreciated them. They're doing a great job. But I remember thinking, man, I don't have any of that. And I'm just, I'm, I'm all in. And we just were very careful about that. And there was, you know, it really paid off at the end because we had a great solid balance sheet and we were able to grow and fuel it at the end very aggressively. Had I uh, chosen to live like a rock star, you know, uh, 12 years into this thing and spend, you know, spend money and run around, uh, it would have ended badly. So I'm, I'm thankful for that. And that's hard. That's hard to talk about because a lot of people, you have some level of measured success. They think, well, I got to go out and buy a, a luxury sedan. I got to have a place, you know, I got to have a mm -hmm. second home. And it's hard, very hard. Well, and in that note, as we're kind of going, you know, progressing with your journey here is, it, was there ever a shift in your mindset? Like, I'm, I'm always trying to now figure out when this happened with people. And maybe it never did of like, because like the, the shifting from annual income and making this like, you know, pulling all the perks out of your business to looking at long-term value creation and understanding what that value might be at the end. And, you know, a couple of examples, I, I mean, I literally know people, Chris, that have, you know, offered, you know, 10 or 10, 20, 30, 40, $50 million for their company and they can't sell because they need every distribution from the business. You know, and like they right. literally can't reverse engineer and to say, well, hey, like in order to maintain my $800,000 lifestyle, I can't sell my company. <laughs> and so like versus like understanding yeah. what that asset might be. Did you ever have a shift in your mindset or how, like where did that come from? And like how did you like how did you start shifting towards like what you could eventually do with sport tech? Yeah. Uh, great, great question. Have you done this before? Is this your first podcast? <laughs> yeah, a few years in. <laughs> really good question. No, absolutely. There was a pivot point for me. I mean, complete change of thinking. It happened 10 years in. So, you know, 2012, rapid growth. Really, we had, we had an opportunity to really ramp up our, um, door production for a couple OEMs. And it was a, it was the first time that we were given complete control of, we own design, all manufacturing and assembly. We made, we, we, it was requiring us to bring in, a, you know, an entirely new group of people, significant process changes. And we had to add a, you know, um, bunch of space. So long story short, built, you know, bought a, bought a big plant, staffed it with a bunch of folks. We're doing this complex assembly. It was going to grow. I mean, we were going to grow that year, you know, probably north of 40%. And we got to the, you know, we got in, we start producing these doors. We're shipping on time. We realized that uh, after about a month, I'm losing about a million bucks a month. Oh. And we, and uh, doors are looking great. Customers happy. Uh, we had massive cost accounting problems. We, so we had, we had, we had grown the top, we had made commitments to produce these parts, but we hadn't earned the right to grow at the rate that we were growing. Cause I didn't, I, I was lagging from a people standpoint. You know, I was trying to run this business 10 years in 
from a garage operation. Now we're, we're 40, $50 million in revenue. I'm trying to run it with some of the same folks that I had from day one. And they were wonderful, gifted people that I loved with all my heart, but we had reached capacity and I needed people that could come in and, and help us scale this thing. And it, and it was in all areas. It was operations, it was finance. And that is when we implemented traction and it came at a great time, made a, made a commitment to start bringing people in to get, to ensure that we could scale this thing, started operating with that, that system. It helped us. But I think the big thing for me was I'm 10 years in and I'm looking at this, still no money in the bank, by the way, still putting everything in, sliding <laughs> every chip in. Yeah, I mean, wearing my arms out from sliding the chips in. And I mean, now I'm all of a sudden a little older and I'm like, hey, w- wait a minute here. This, this, when does, where does this end? What is the end point here? And that's when I really started to pay attention to uh, the M&A markets. And I, I specifically remember digging in and really trying to better understand what are the key value drivers in a business. And we made a, a conscious effort at that point after we committed to traction. I, I completely turned over my senior leadership team, one of the most difficult things or the most difficult thing I've ever done, because I had to part ways with some folks that I that were great people mm-hmm. that helped me grow the business to that point. But we were not going to get to that next level with the same team. So we, we made process change, operating system commitment, completely turned the leadership team over, and I committed to an intensive study of M&A, value drivers, and I, and I committed to run the business from that day forward as though it was for sale, even though it wasn't. And, that, and I had no intention of selling the business. In fact, um, right to the end, I thought I'd keep it and turn it over to my kids. But I knew that it was going to be important that I understood what are those value drivers, what what inherently drives value, what depletes value. And because they obviously there's a reason that those are the value drivers. It's a healthy business when you pay attention to these things. And it completely changed our business from that day forward. So, I mean, like, I'd love it. Like, if I could just capture everything you just said and then just spread that <laughs> across the world. <laughs> I mean, and it's it's hard as heck to figure that out because, like, you start to realize, like, I think you, you hit on a couple, I mean, a lot of good notes there is, like, at some point you got to get your money back, right? Like, you know, if you're, especially yeah. if you're putting all the chips in, you got to like, if you're just even a normal person, you're going, okay, like, when is this, like, when do, when, when is it about me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, yeah. when, when do I yeah. get to take some on? So like, you know, as you're, as you're doing this and you're and when you say it completely changed the business, what are some different, like, how did your strategies shift? Right. And anyway, so what are the, some of the big takeaways that you, as you're learning M&A and value creation, how did that trickle into the business? Like what were things that you were doing? Well, I was, I was in a, I've been in peer groups since day one and one of the you know smartest things I ever did. Someone encouraged me to, to, to get involved in peer groups. And I, I was at a, in a CEO group at the time and we brought in a speaker who talked about M&A and business valuations and kind of the trends in the market. And this would have been circa 2012, 2013. And, and I'll just never forget sitting there and just having this awakening as he's talking about enterprise value and the importance of, of understanding it, understanding those value drivers, whether your business is for sale or not. And that's when I really committed to, I'm going to run this thing like it's for sale, even though it's not, because it's the right thing to do. 
So, you know, for me, I had, I had to get my head around that and it's hard because that was not, that was not my first instinct, right? I'm a, I'm this crazy entrepreneur. I'm a visionary just working on growing. And I think the first 10 years of my business, I just thought if I can grow that top line, keep growing it aggressively, keep an eye on costs a little bit, but let the other guys worry about that. I think we're going to be fine. Well, what had happened is we had a customer concentration that was out of control. I mean, I was concentrated into one industry, but then specifically with one customer who happened to be the largest in that space. And, you know, if you look at key value drivers, regardless of who presents it, uh, customer concentration is at the top. It's either number one or number two every time. So from that moment on, we start addressing that. And it's hard when that one customer continues to grow. But that's where we really put in a diversification strategy and started expanding into other markets with other customers, doing everything we could to to spread that out. And as it turns out, you know, fast forwarding to the fall of 2019, it was it, it, it was one of the best things we ever did. Had we not done that, had we just focused on our key customers in that key space, enterprise value would have been a fraction of what it was at the end. So I That's think awesome. it was just the process of, for me, uh, it was another two by four to the head. I mean, <laughs> yeah, right? I, I remember, I remember after that sitting with my peer group guys, I know and love that have been in this group with for years saying, I, I think we need to change our way of thinking. I think we need to focus on this EBITDA thing they're talking about. I mean, literally, I had never, I had never talked about it prior to that, and I never really understood why it was important. But as as it started to sink into my thick skull about the importance of that, and I remember talking to some of the guys in the room, and they said, "Well, you know, I don't care. I'm not going to sell my business." I said, so, so even if you're not, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's so the right way to run your business. And how about the next generation? Do you want to set your kids up with a business that's got an 80% customer concentration? Or do you want to just ignore these value drivers? There's a reason they're there. So our whole group kind of pivoted together and uh, it was, it's been really fun. And it was just, uh, for me, it was, it was a mindset situation where I just mindset had to shift. I love it. I love it. And, yeah. like, and it's so, it's, I think at some point in like a different parallel life of mine, I want to know why people don't want to focus on this. Cause it's like, okay, when I know you and I are going to get into it as we get into the sale and the, to private equity, but there's a whole industry that does this for a living because business owners don't think about it. And it'd be like, yeah. it'd be like real estate investors walking all over the place saying, look at all these people that never invested in their houses ever. And we can just mm-hmm. buy them on the cheap and do all the stuff that they could have done over the years, but they chose not yeah. to. And it's just, yeah. it's just, it's such an interesting, and I don't know, if it's an interesting dynamic. And I don't know if it's because there's just no education out there, which is what we found. And like, uh, yeah, I don't. So uh, like, Chris, as you're diving in, you're, you've got this new mindset mindset shift. Like and I, when, before we hit the record, we were talking about the mind analogy is when Neo in the matrix sees the zeros and ones, right? Or someone like yeah, yeah. goes from two-dimensional to three-dimensional thinking to go, okay, I get it now. Like, I know I don't want to sell, but I'm thinking about this all the time because then you've got options and freedom, et cetera. And right. as you're talking to investment bankers and you're starting to get in this world, what, like, you said that you weren't planning on selling until you were, right? I think that is also a big takeaway if like yeah. most people are never planning on selling and then something happens or like there's an offer. So like where along this as you're creating value and you're marching towards success, what, you know, what was your vision for the business? Like what did you want? Like in your head, you said to pass down to your kids, like what equaled success to you before you decided to, to go the different direction? 
Well, I mean, prior to that, to that pivot, it was about top line growth. And I, I was of the belief that it was just okay. We had a tough year where net profitability was off. That was just okay. So we didn't have controls in place. We didn't have, you know, we didn't have a laser focus on cost accounting. Uh, we were, it was just all about the top. And then in 2012, this year, when we started losing 800,000 to a million a month, and I, you know, I looked at, we finished that year with some, one of the strongest top line growth trajectories we ever had with about 2% net profitability. Oh and I, I remember after I had uh, sat in some of these seminars and, and I started doing some research on, on enterprise value, I remember doing a quick calc and with just a moderate multiple and thinking, you got to be kidding me. This is what my business is worth based on last year's numbers. And I remember thinking, uh, I, I'm not selling the business, but I don't have anything else. I mean, that's very common for entrepreneurs. There was no 401k. There's no pot of gold. There's no inheritance. Um, this is it. And uh, it really shook me up. It really, really shook me up. And I, I just was laser focused from that day forward. Still ran the business the same way with that entrepreneurial drive and the passion. But the, the major decisions we were making, the goals we were setting through our EOS journey, they were all focused on, the, on those things that matter most. I mean, you have to have profitability. The business, you know, you have to continue to find new ways to increase profitability. And, um, you know, the, and, and you, the customer, you know, that concentration piece for us was major, major. I mean, it was cool. a big deal. There's, and, a, there's, uh, a, there's a phrase, Chris, yeah. we talk about, which is sustainable, predictable, and transferable revenue. Or I'm sorry, and right. ca cash flow, like right. both, like yeah. you ha your cash yeah. flow has to be transferable. And like, it's what's yeah. interesting too, then you can do whatever you want with the business, whether it's sell it to your kids, do an ESOP, do a private equity recap, right. because the, the, the cash flow pays for itself. So like, yeah. you know, when you said that you were looking to pass it on to your kids, what happened when you went from legacy, I'm going to own this forever to not like, where were you when that decision flipped? Yeah, it's an interesting thing when when you have a set of values within a family and you raise your kids a certain way. Mike, you know, I was raised in an entrepreneurial system in a household where I was taught to if you don't like something, build it your own, start your own, do you can do this. I raised my kids the same way. So then it shouldn't have been a surprise to me when I sat down with them um near the end and said, "Hey, you know, a couple things have happened in the business. We're actually for the very first time thinking maybe we should talk about selling it, but I assume they'd both say, oh, I want to run this thing. So I went to my son, had a conversation. He goes, dad, this is, I'm, I, I'm an entrepreneur. I have ideas. I want to do my own thing. I love the business. It's been great. But he hadn't been working in the business. He was on his own, doing his own thing. And he said, but uh, no. So, I mean, I think you should sell it. And I went to my daughter thinking she would, she would change my mind and she would have a different point of view. Word for word, same thing. Dad, I, you didn't raise us that way. I mean, I love the business. And she was working in it, but she had no aspirations of running it. She wants, she wants to do her own thing. So that was, it made the decision for my wife and I very easy. We were very proud of their response. And I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, but that was kind of the, the point where um, we looked at each other and we had our grandkids. Uh, we just were just turning into grandparents for the first time. We're, you know, mid fifties and looking at uh, life from a different angle. And all of a sudden decided maybe, maybe we should consider it. And that's kind of what that's changed. And it literally changed in a matter of days. So to your point earlier, the business isn't for sale until it is right. I think as entrepreneurs, we can, 
we can uh, draw a line in the sand and say, oh, my business isn't for sale. I have friends that do it every day. Nope, nope, nope. It's not going to be for sale. Interesting what happens with family, with health, with the economy. I mean, it could be (laughs) for every one of us. It's a different trigger point, as you know. For me, it was looking at, you know, where I am in life and and what I want to do, how much time I have left. I got these grandkids, uh, what matters most. And then the other thing is just that, that people forget about is as human beings and especially as quirky entrepreneurs, we reserve the right to change our mind. And right. I did. I did. And then the other thing is I was just kind of burnt out, loved the business, still love it. And I'm proud of what they're doing. And, and I, you know, but I was ready for as an entrepreneur, we need variety. We need challenges. I need a new mountain to climb. And I, I was just ready for a change. I didn't see that coming at all. So, so this is this is beautiful, Chris, because you know what? Like, I think it was, the beauty of what you went through is you experienced the mindset shift about creating value before that happened, right? I mean, yeah. and you've probably seen this in your peer groups as I've seen it in mine is like that mindset shift of like, I like it or that triggering event happens when you have a shitty company. And you like, like when I say like, like what, if yeah. you build a valuable business, that's true freedom. And we're going to get into this as we march towards the sale story, because you explained to me some things that you had leverage on that no, no most people don't. Where like, if mm-hmm. you build a valuable business, then you have choices, which is honestly right. what, isn't that true freedom versus oh, going, man. okay, now you're like, now you're burnt out and you're miserable, but you're stuck having to do one thing or the other. So like, oh, yeah. <laughs> does that make sense? Cause I think you're going to, oh, like, there's nothing worse. Yeah. Right. Like you, 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 like you want to, like, as an entrepreneur, you want to do whatever you want to do. And that's true freedom. But if you don't build a valuable business that you can transfer to someone else, then you become stuck in your own cage of yeah. cash flow. Well, and so like, go ahead, go ahead. Yeah. I, I just, one thing I want to add to is I was look, you know, when I made this pivot and I started looking at this list of the top 10 value drivers, obviously, uh, as we start looking at you know, understanding what, EBITDA is understanding how these other factors impact that customer concentration. One of the big ones was, uh, will the business run itself without the principal, without the, the CEO, the owner? And that was a big deal for me because I was more involved in the business. So I set a goal that I'm going to get this thing running, operating, continuing to grow and thrive without me. So I set out uh, as I was building out my senior team and, and I brought together an absolute I mean, just a team of studs. These guys were absolutely amazing and continue. They're running the business today. A couple things happened there. Um, when when I got to the point where I could take off, I, I was starting to take some money out of the business. I mean, this thing is cranking, still not for sale. Uh, it was wonderful in that it, it, it was adding value. The business, the business, the value of that business went up, I mean, significantly when, when we got to the point where it was evident and, and, you know, defendable that I didn't have to be there, but it, it also became less important that I was there and it was a little hard on my ego. And Mm -hmm. I think, Mm -hmm. um, we're entrepreneurs, we're builders and I want to move the needle. And so I started enjoying it and I'm taking more time off. And then it got to a point where it's like, huh, I mean, uh, this isn't quite as fun as it used to be. I'm getting, now I'm taking money out. The business is worth more than ever. And it's a luxury. And I don't want to sound like a little whiner on this, but I think it's, it's, it's healthy for entrepreneurs. And I know there's a lot of them out there like me that, that were, you know, that think like I do, you want to be able to contribute. And I think you can stand back and say, Oh, if I could step away and let these guys run the business, I'd be the happiest man in the world. 
Yeah, right. (laughs) I was happy and I was proud and I love these guys, but I'm not ready to quit. And I I want to move the needle. So it's interesting that that actually played a role. That was one of the factors when when we decided to sell. I'm ready to do something else and I'm ready to to, uh, you know, kind of look at the next chapter. And that involves that building phase that I, you know, I kind of missed. So then let's get into the, the, the tree. So when you decided to sell after this conversation with your kids, what, you know, what was the next steps? Like, so, you know, as you've been educating yourself in M&A, how did you hire your team of advisors, valuation that you were marching towards, whatever it was, you know, like what, what did, like when you decided, okay, now it's action time. What was the, mm-hmm. what was the, the steps that you took to hire the team um, before? Cause you said it took a year so we can walk through kind of the, the, we, as this journey unfolded. Yeah. Oh. Are you there? Yep. Sorry. So, what? um, I don't know if I, yeah, it's had the, I'll make sure the editors get that out of there for the, it's said internet unstable. So like, what was the next step for like, did you hire the, you know, a team of advisors? Was it a, an attorney, a, a CPA, an investment banker? Like what was the next step that you took now that it was, that you decided it was time for action? Yeah. So, you know, the interesting thing for me is when I made that commitment, you know, around 2012, 13 to start running my business differently, paying attention to value drivers, enterprise value, I aligned myself with some folks, um, you know, to try to learn. So one of the first connections I made was with uh, an investment banking group. They were, you know, like many business owners, we're getting the calls all the time. Would you consider selling? And I would always just either ignore them or tell them no. I had a few that uh, that I, I talked with and, I, and one in particular. So I started having conversation and we would meet, you know, once or twice a year and built some trust with this gentleman. And it became evident that they were leaders in the market. So I did the same with uh, M&A attorneys. I did the same with uh, some other trusted advisors. So in while I was doing that, it was not with the intention of selling, but it was more about education for me. I wanted to better understand. So who, who better to, to educate you on business valuation than a sell side investment banker? They live it every day. They I mean, they're looking at the, they know multiples and market trends better than anybody. So I just chose to try to tap into that. And he was hoping that someday I'd change my mind. And in the back of my mind, I'm saying, dude, I'm never gonna, well, he was right. And I did. So <laughs> it was real easy when I, when we made that decision and it literally happened in weeks, uh, he was the first person I called, said, well, you were right. And he goes, well, I knew someday you'd call me. And I, you know, and then it was real easy for me. So I had, I had investment banking lined up. I had, uh, you know, M&A attorney uh, lined up um, and some of the other resources that I had built relationships with. I think looking back, I'm, I'm very thankful and I'm blessed that that worked out that way. If I had to start from scratch and go out and interview a bunch of these folks, it would have been. Oh my gosh, um, yeah. You know what I mean? So, oh my gosh. and then of yeah. course you ask, you know, you, you have trust established with a investment banker and then you ask them, Hey, who do you know that can handle this? I mean, you, we have to do a Q of E. We, I need, you know, I need an M and A attorney. They work with the best of the best. So that really, really helped. And I, I recommend that people, uh, whether, again, whether they're thinking about selling or not, bet, you know, the, the better your understanding is uh, of that M and A space and how it works the better equipped you're going to be down the road when inevitably you change your mind or the next generation does. 
So then as you're having this conversation with these advisors, at what point, because as the ball, as they call it the deal train, right? As the deal train starts going, you know, what was the, how did, you know, did you have anything planned with your executive team? And then did you, in your head, did you have any kind of like, okay, I think it's going to be a strategic buyer, maybe some private equity. I don't know how well educated you were on that, on that marketplace and those kind of buyers, but like, what was the sequence of events of getting, you know, between what you knew and then also getting your, uh, your executive team involved? I don't know if you had some phantom stock programs or whatever it is, because I think that's everybody's fears. Now I've decided I'm, you know, doing, I'm having, you know, like mob type meetings with these investment bankers and dark corners and, you know, the back room of restaurants. So no one knows. And then like, all of a sudden you have to like start dealing with this. So what was that? Like, what was that process like getting everybody involved? It was emotional, right? Because it was a big decision. And as an entrepreneur, I just remember having this, I had pinges of guilt knowing that I needed to tell my team. So early, early on, I shared with my senior leadership team that we had made this decision. They, um, you know, they received it pretty well, but I just remember thinking, Hey, I'm sorry. I felt like I was disappointing them. And of course, you know, um, I think that's just, that's just human nature. But uh, I, I chose to let them know right away. I know some folks that friends of mine that sold their businesses and they tried to, you know, like you say, lurk around in dark shadows and talking to these guys in suits. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, yeah. you know, but we were a full disclosure culture, very candid, very open, candid conversation. So I, I chose to tell them. And uh, I, th- I don't regret that. I think that was the, the right thing to do. You know, and I think then it was just a it was kind of a systematic process after that in terms of gaining better understanding. As I, as I look back, I made a couple of mistakes in that era. I wish I would have done more research and really had a better understanding of strategic buyers versus financial buyers. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, I, I guess I had a vision in my head that we were going to sell to a strategic. I just was convinced that and I even had companies in my mind, oh, they're going to want to buy us. And, you know, we reached out to them. And as it turns out, they didn't. Um, um, it, you know, we sold to a financial buyer. And I, I guess I just wish I would have better understood that mm-hmm. and what what the experience, how that experience uh, varies. Because it's a vastly different experience selling to a, a strategic versus a PE or, you know, financial buyer. Uh, I was not ready for that. Uh, it caught me off guard. It was, uh, well, a little place, unpleasant. Yeah. So I was going to say, well, we can, we can unfold that because I want to unpack that, uh, that, that experience. Cause like, let, let's maybe we can kind of jump a couple steps of like, okay, so you got the pitch yeah. book, you got your investment bankers, yeah. you got your deal team. And I want to come back to the family office. Um, because I think that's a, that, that's kind of a parallel yeah. story, but like, Right. As you got your investment banker and there, I don't, you know, if they ran a controlled auction where they got a few hundred people, some strategic, some private equity and financials. So yep. experience, explain what the difference was because you could have a bunch of offers, but like what I try and say is every offer is different from the valuation terms and conditions, what they want with you. I mean, like you can't even like, like imagine the amount of variables that could be different and being able to weigh yeah. those variables against each other as yeah. what's important to you and the money is so difficult. So explain, expand on like your experience of the difference of financial versus strategic in that process of learning that. Yeah. So, so very typical, I think when, when we sent our book out, it went out to hundreds and hundreds, you know, in very limited form and then it got narrowed down. Right. So we, I think we had, you know, there were, you know, 40 or 50 businesses that expressed interest and then, 
you know, initial indication of interest from, you know, 20 and it narrowed down. And, and early on, um, there, you know, there were some, you know, some strategic, but certainly more financial, which is a reflection of kind of the, the, the era in which we live. Mm -hmm. But I still thought that we would be most appealing to a strategic. And to be honest with you, I had that in my head and I could kind of envision what that would be like. And, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that was the point when I needed to ask more questions and I should have familiarized myself more with the financial side because it's so vastly different in, in even in the process, right? So we went in this, narrowed it down, got it to five, had one strategic in in the final five. They were really not a player. It didn't look like it was going to, you know, they, they just were not as serious. We had, you know, a couple uh, financial buyers that were uh, very, very aggressive, ended up going with one of them. That's when I got the next two by four to the head. Um, <laughs> it's like, holy cow. I, I didn't understand how that, pe- I, I mean, I had heard, right? And But I had very limited understanding of how the whole PE model works. And it's fine, right? And it works. And, you know, but had I been a little more uh, educated on that, I probably would have handled some of the in-depth questioning, interrogation. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's very, very, very in depth, and I had no idea. So it's hard not as a as a passionate, prideful entrepreneur. This is your baby. You've spent your whole life building it, and now I have people coming in, and their whole intent is to get the the price down, right? So they're going to try to find problems. They're going to point out this and that, and and you take offense to it. And it was really hard for me. And as I look back on it, I think that they were being entirely fair at times. Maybe a couple times they weren't, but. You know, I, if I had been better prepared, I think I, I could have handled that a little better. And I know friends of mine that are about to go into this and I'm just going out of my way to say, dude, beware, Get, you know, you need to be ready and just, just know that they're not, they're not calling you a liar. They're not, it's not a personal attack. This is how it works. That's how well, that, it's, it's, they're spreadsheet you know. junkies, you know what I mean? And there's a, there's a perforation, uh right now of like, of operator PE firms and family offices now coming around, but like, so like the, the PE firm that bought my partner's company, the multi-billion dollar firm. And when I always ask someone in our boot camps, I'm like, you know how many people work for that PE firm? You know, they, they have like ranges all over the place. There's, I'm like, there's only 12, <laughs> there's yeah. 12 people. And they have these spreadsheets of like your EBITDA and cash flow just going straight up at a 45 degree angle. <laughs> it's, so like, and their goal is to then like in due diligence and it like is to understand where the risk is. And it's so arbitrary. I mean, like it's, and it's all based on each PE. Like if, if you've seen one PE firm, you've seen one PE firm, that's it. Like, so yeah. explain like that process, Chris, as you, as you're going down this route, I mean, did you have like an exclusive period with this buyer and then like what that due diligence and like those, when you say you learned a lot, what, what were some of the big takeaways? And again, Regardless of getting in maybe the specifics of, you know, the, the personal dynamics with you and the buyers, like, I think this is just generally how this process works that I've, I've, I've been aware of. So like, explain yeah. like what, where were the, where was the other, call maybe like, you know, one by ones that were getting hit across the face <laughs> instead of two by fours along, like, along the way? What, what, what was that experience like? Well, I think again, to, you know, for me, if if I had known what to expect, right, and this is my fault, right? I, I think my investment bankers did everything in their power to warn me, but I maybe didn't listen or I'm stubborn. But 
You know, I, I guess when, when they're digging in at the depth and the level that they were, when they come in and 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 mean completely consume your senior team and your finance department, I mean, just completely take them offline. And I wasn't prepared for that. And I wasn't prepared for this thing dragging out as long as it did. I mean, it was, I mean, you know, once we do it, 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 it was three times longer than they had, uh, you know, suggested it might be. And part of it is that it, I understand now they're, you know, they're doing everything they can to mitigate risk, right? They, it's a, it's a very, very thin margin. And, and the whole relationship that they have with their debt partners and equity partners. I mean, I didn't understand these PE firms, most of them, a lot of them, they don't hardly put any money in, right? They have, they have debt and equity. It's a ratio, um, very, very thin. I never, I, you know, when we first had the first few meetings and they had conference calls and there was always two, three, four bankers on the speakerphone listening all day. And I thought, well, what in the world's going on? Well, they, I mean, they literally have got these partners with them and the deal hinges on that. And if one of their lenders steps out and says, I don't like this, um, it creates massive problems. And I guess I didn't, I didn't understand that. And uh, I, you know, said things and did things, you know, that, that drove these guys nuts. Again, I'm the goofy (laughs) entrepreneur, you know, I know how to run a business and, and you come in and you, and you, they, I, I interpreted it. Maybe I was thin skinned, maybe, maybe not, but I mean, as they were attacking us and it's like, you gotta be kidding me. I mean, here it is, look at it. But they look at data in a way I've never seen before. I mean, you talk about data geeks, you talk about spreadsheet fanatics. It's it's actually amazing what they do, and there's some really smart people. So again, no no offense, but I wasn't ready for it. I I didn't prepare myself. So I would just say to anyone that is considering selling, uh, if you can sell to a strategic, I think you're always better off if you're you know depending on the business. But for us, I, I just had this fairy tale image of selling to a strategic that, you know, I knew and I could see how our business would fit in and everyone would, you know, be happy ever after, you know, it just, just it didn't end that way. And I was not ready to deal with the data geeks. It just threw me for a loop. Um, I, I interviewed this guy recently, Chris, and he literally said, he goes, oh yeah, I told the analyst get out of my effing office before I punch you in the face. He literally said yeah. that to the guy because he was like, yeah, so. I, well, uh, and it got, it got ugly. And I, I just looking back on it, I understand that I contributed to that. Right. I mean, I did, um, you know, I, I'm a passionate defender of my family and the legacy that we created. And I felt like they were doing everything in their power to chisel this price down. And, and, you know, I think on to, on their part, they thought they were going to come into this family-owned business and find low-hanging fruit. They thought, for sure, here's our offer, but for sure, we're going to ding them on this, this, and this. And they came in, and they couldn't find it. So they were under big pressure. We, we had a pretty well-run machine, and, it you know, we were a little tighter than they thought operationally, and the systems were a little stronger than they thought. So it, there was tension back and forth, and there was a point where, you know, I was ready to walk. I, I just, I was ready to bail. But as I look back on it now, I think we got a fair price. I wouldn't wish that process on my worst enemy. So I'm somewhat inspired and passionate to make sure I share that with other business owners. If you're going to go through it, do yourself a favor and familiarize yourself with the ABCs of PE. 
because if you don't, they're going to come in and you're going to immediately demonize them. And I, and I did, and I, I regret some of that. So it's, it's a, it was just a tough, tough experience as it all turned out, everything's good, but uh, boy, it was a, what were some of the things that they were trying, what was some of the things that they were like, were you, because you had been focusing on the value drivers over the years that you were able to dig in your heels and not, cause I mean, like their goal is to get their internal rate of return for their investors. Right. Which is why they slap a bunch of debt on it and very little equity and then try and push the price down. So like, what were some of the things that you were able to, to hold strong on because you'd worked on it for years? So the number one thing that they didn't understand, um, it was all rooted in our core values. So our, our core values, uh, obviously were the key fundamentals that guided the company from day one to the end. And our culture was built around that. So there were numerous instances where they would ask us about, okay, so this, these next platforms that are coming up at these, with these customers, what makes you think you're going to get that business? And, and, you know, the long and short of it was partially that we were the only supplier in the world that does it. Right. But what makes you think, and, and I, I remember saying to them and my guys, it's because that's the, that's the way we understand it. That's the relationship we have and it's rooted in trust. They can't quantify that. They can't trust things like trust and integrity mean nothing to these guys. And I understand why, because that's not on the spreadsheet. And we had, you know, it was a difficult conversation. And I think after a while they dove in and when we let them go out and talk to our customers, then it, I think it sunk in, but um, that was a hard one. I mean, it was really hard to to get through that because it, it's hard not to think that they're attacking you and, you know, they're just doing their job really. Um, I but think you, that, that was one thing. And the other thing is we're, you know, family owned business, uh, business of our size. We didn't leave any money in the business. And they said it was the first deal of this size they've ever seen like that, or one of the only ones. And so that then added to some paranoia on their side in terms of the non-compete. So we we spent a month on the non-compete. And again, I, I would say, hey, I have no desire to compete with you. That's not me. I'm a man of integrity. They'd look at me like I was a you know, a Martian. They didn't understand what that meant. If it wasn't in writing, if they couldn't quantify it, if they didn't have data <laughs> to support it. And I'm looking, you know, finally, we Give me a handshake, even, right? <laughs> well, it's like, yeah, I'm a handshake guy. Ask anybody, ask my customers. That's how we built this business. They're like, that doesn't mean squat to me. Um, what else you got? Well, and well, which is, so I want to like, cause the deal structure, you know, is usually one of the, the questions I get into, which is, you didn't leave any money in there. When, when, when you say that, like just for clarification for the listeners, I mean, you didn't roll any equity, right? So you, it wasn't just cash no. in the books when you sold, but it was like, you didn't, you walked away from the business, from a, which yeah. is so unique. Like I, I don't, I mean, other than a family office buying someone, they usually buy out all everything, but like a private equity from allowing the owner to walk away with nothing rolled in is very unique. So what was the overall deal structure Did they Was it cash? Was there any promissory notes? And then, you know, what did they do to the business afterwards? Like how much debt did they put on the books to purchase it? Because I think you and I were talking about a story before we got online of like, you know, there, which is probably has to do with what your, your ability or not ability or your desire, or not a desire to roll some equity in there that it, you, the, the company still has to thrive and pay off that debt, <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, no, and I, well, yeah. And I think what's pr- pretty important here that people understand the primary reason, I mean, there's two primary reasons that they like people to leave money in. They want you to be a partner, right? They want you to be uh, vested and have a piece, you know, skin in the game, which I get, but it's hard to sell that to a lifelong entrepreneur who now has no control. 
So to your point, they're going to do things with this business I would never dream of doing. Lever it to a level, level that's unimaginable for me. I mean, take all the cash out of the business and run this thing on a thin margin and make cuts that I would never dream of doing. I did, I, for me, I couldn't do it. I couldn't be a part of that because it didn't align with who I am. So, but that's the reason they also, these PE firms have very little cash to put in these deals. They're dependent upon relationships with debt partners and equity partners. And, you know, they all operate uh, very similar ratios, you know, and I would say these guys were, you know, very typical, um, not, not levered any more than anyone else, but it's tight. The industry is a lot, right? I mean, like in what, and I don't know with your PE firm, like, so what I find just crazy, and like, like this is a whole podcast for a different day, or maybe yeah, just me talking yeah. in my basement by myself is like the, the yeah. PE industry is so little, has so little regulation, Chris, like, like, Right. Like they can, they go get this debt from these big, huge credit tranches from like, you know, endowments and pension funds and all this stuff. And there, there's yep. very little oversight. So they can put up to yeah. seven times EBITDA in debt on these where a normal commercial bank wouldn't put more than two. <laughs> so you're just like, oh, yeah. it's insane. Yeah. Like, and then like, yeah. no one's responsible if the thing goes belly up. It's just, yeah. Yeah. yeah it's crazy. And I'm not a, I mean, I'm an anti-regulation guy. I mean, I, <laughs> I'm a capitalist, and uh, but I, when I start digging into this and looking at it and doing a little research, I, that was one of my first comments. It's I'm amazed that there isn't more regulation. I mean, it's crazy because you're talking about huge dollars in play here. What's going on right now with PE? So uh, and, and, it's, it's very interesting. It's crazy. And like like I said, that multi-billion dollar fund that bought my partner's company has 12 people. So it's not like yeah. it's not like oh, there's yeah. a bunch of people that are like, it's not like, I don't know, man. Like it, it just, yeah. it makes, it makes no logical sense to me, honestly. Yeah. Yeah. But again, as I keep thinking about this and I think about the experience and it was a rough one for me, um, I, I just feel compelled to share with friends and colleagues and other business owners, uh, if if you're you know if you're thinking about selling and you go through this, um, make sure you fully understand it. Make sure that you don't get caught off guard like I did because it really was a surprise for me. And I don't like surprises. I just don't do well with it. And I I couldn't believe what they were saying and what they were doing. And and you know at the moment I, I felt like hey these guys are. They're coming after me. They're calling me a liar. They're questioning my company, my baby that I spent my life building. You know, it's just a lot of emotion attached to that. And I could have, you know, I think um, I think I could have handled it a little better than I did. I certainly have some uh, looking back on it, just realized that I, you know, there were some moments that were not my best. I will just say, you know, because it was man. a lot of sleepless nights, you know, you're thinking about your family and the legacy component and big numbers, right? I mean, major, major numbers. So just make sure you're familiar with how they work and the levers that they're going to pull uh, before you go into it. And I think it will help people. So that's like where we, we talk about our five principles, understanding your first one, which is your drivers. What's important to you? How do you then the second principle of understanding your financial targets and how to weigh all these decisions against each other is the knowledge yeah. piece. So then like, yeah. I know we're getting short on time here, Chris, is it like, you know, at, you had mentioned that, you know, a lot of entrepreneurs think they're just going to golf, but you did not, you had some like reality that you approached this in. And so maybe explain what you did along the year that it took to, to take this to market and to sell it, what you were doing in parallel that allowed you to uh, kick off um, after the sale with, uh, with a bunch of passion. Yeah, no. And I, I'm thankful for this piece because I feel like I was well prepared. I had, I was fortunate enough to have some friends that sold businesses and I was able to, you know, uh, talk with some other folks that I met 
and and learn from it, right? And there was a lot of conversation about um, what's next. And some, you know, I I had a couple friends that put all their energy into selling the business, never gave any thought to what's next. So here you have someone that's been an entrepreneur their whole life, this driven type A. And you know, whether we want to admit it or not, are some of our perceived self-worth is attached to the entities in which we have created. It's wrong. I get it, but it is what it is. Right. So they get a big check, they close. And the next day they're sitting at the breakfast counter, staring at their wife wondering, what in the hell do I do now? And, and it happens all the time. And that scared me because my biggest fear is that I don't have a, a place to go to a team to work with and deals. I love deals. Right. So I started preparing. We, we start framing up what, you know, Carlson 2.0 looks like, you know, and, and I'm very thankful that we did that because literally the day after we closed, um, I walked into our next office. So we, we have our family office all set up. Uh, we have a couple other businesses that we own in the racing industry that, uh, are basically nonprofits uh, because you don't make money in racing. It's <laughs> a bit Ted's focus. I try to get those in the black, but uh, we set up a family foundation, can't, uh, Carlson Family Foundation, doing some great things with that. That was all set up, 501c3 status in place. Um, I already had my team kind of built out. Uh, we were fortunate enough to take a few key people with us. Um, that we're working on some of these other, you know, we call them non-essential sport tech employees that we're working in our other family businesses. And our intention is that, you know, that we're going to, we are going to do some uh, business acquisitions. We've got a model in place. We're, we're looking at deal flow right now. And there was never a moment when I stared across the table wondering, well, what do I do now? I, I, I love to hunt and fish. I love the racing industry, but I know I can't fish every day. I, I'm, I need to be in business. I am a business junkie. You know, I get energy from it. So I'm thankful that I had enough people. And I had a, you know, again, back to the two by four, I had a couple of my friends say, Hey dude, you can't hunt and fish uh, full time. You're going to need to do something. And I'm thankful that they got me thinking that way and that we set this up because it's really been um, a smooth transition. We're having a lot of fun and I'm doing what I love as an entrepreneur. We're going to be, you know, we're going to be working with small businesses with family owned businesses who have reached constraints. They have been unable to grow their business because maybe they reached that 2012 moment that we did and that, that they had trouble with that pivot. And I'd love to be able to sit across, share our story, share our values, our operational philosophy and then partner with them at some level. And I just think it's a refreshing change to what's going on with especially some of the financial buyers out there. So totally um, agree. If- and Chris, is, it, is there anything like, you know, if you look back at your journey, knowing what you know now, like, you know, there's a couple of people that have probably very similar numbers to you that have been on the show that they're like, you know what? One woman is like, I wish I wouldn't have sold. She sold a PE firm and then they destroyed her baby. And uh, yeah. I'm not, I'm not saying that they did it because it's been fairly fresh. So the, the story yep. has yet to unfold, but like the stories are very common. Right. So like, it, but she said, I wish I would have been the one acquiring. I mean, like, and so like, there's different structures yeah. like ESOPs, or you could have leveraged your own company. There's different things that you could have done. Like, is there any regret or like just, Cause obviously it sounds like you're passionate now, but like maybe like there's a better way to put it. Cause uh, like I would have done a lot of things differently, Chris. However, yeah, however. I, w- I wouldn't be where I am today. And I love where I am today. So it's almost like yeah. in a different yeah. situation, these are tactical strategies that would have yeah. done differently, but I'm, I don't regret yeah. where I'm at. Does that make sense? 
It totally does. And, and, uh, no, you know, I, I, I'm very thankful for this too. I don't, I, I literally don't have any regrets. I mean, and it's relatively fresh, right? So, you know, um, it's only been a few months, but there's not a day that I say, man, I wish I was still there. I miss some of my people. Obviously we had a fantastic team, my, my leadership team, some of the most impressive guys I've ever met in my life. You know, I will tell you that, uh, you know, it's a little different starting with a team of three or four as we start <laughs> cranking here. Uh, I'm not saying we have a, a talent deficit because I have some great folks, but I'm used to working with a very uh, complete, thorough, robust team. It's a little different, but it's very entrepreneurial and very yeah. edgy. And, I'm, you know, so I'm liking it. But, you know, the only thing that I you know, maybe regret again is, is just, I wish I would have educated myself in a couple areas. One being I want, I should have had a full understanding of how PE and financial buyers work. That would have saved me some grief. And I can assure you it would have saved some grief uh, with our buyer. Cause I, I know I was a little unpleasant at times, but uh, the other thing is really understanding enterprise value. I think that virtually every business owner I know thinks their business is worth more than it is. And I was in that group. I, I think that my, my investment bankers gave me a range in the very early uh, stages. Turns out they were right on. I mean, right on. And I didn't believe them. I thought that we'd sell to a strategic, that strategic would pay up. Uh, you know, I just think it's the nature of entrepreneurs. I wish that I had been a little better prepared for that. And I, cause I think that would have eased the entire process. Because mm -hmm. we ended up right where they said we were gonna, and um, it helped me at the end as I reflected back on my notes. But as I'm talking to business owners now, including some that were, you know, we're talking to folks about buying their business, I see, I see this very, very consistently. Everybody thinks their business is worth more, and you know what it is. Uh, literally, you talk to someone, they say, well, my buddy sold his business uh, and he got a 10 multiple. I should get the same. They're in completely different industries. <laughs> the business is completely different, but they, they get hung up on a multiple. And what I've been saying to a lot of people is multiple of what? Right. I mean, because what you know, right. everybody asked me, oh, what'd you get? Did you get a seven and eight. I said, what difference does it make? It, it, what are you multiplying? Because a multiple of zero is zero. And I know people that have businesses that have, you know, virtually zero profitability and think their, their business is worth a bunch of dough. And I hate to be the one to tell them that's not. So, again, it's educate yourself. <laughs> Better understand it, you know. Uh, I, I mean, like, like I love it because you just, like, in our boot camp, we literally go over enterprise, and then, like, I would even say take it two steps further because, like, and like everybody talks about the enterprise value and the multiple whatever on the golf course, but then I like to say, well, what's your equity value? I mean, by the way, yeah. your equity value is after your debt. Oh, and you had four partners. Oh, and by yeah. the way, okay, mm -hmm. one more step further is after equity, then it's called net proceeds. <laughs> like, yeah. and that's after yeah. tax man takes whatever. So like, it's just people have, people are measuring yeah. and monitoring the wrong numbers, completely wrong numbers. Well, and make sure you have a very strong understanding of capital gains because <laughs> uh, Uncle Chris is going to be writing a check here in April. And I still am not over that. I mean, <laughs> and again, it's back to the same thing. Educate yourself. Understand what your business is really worth, and then understand what does it cost, the transaction costs, if you have partnerships. By the way, you have to pay off your debt, net proceeds. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> because it, uh... I think we get, and again, I'm picking on myself. I'm one of these quirky entrepreneurs, and I, you know, I embrace it, but I, 
you have to look at the whole picture. You have to understand if you, I think people sit and they say, oh, my work, my business is worth, you know, $100 million. Okay. What's the real value? Then it's probably worth 80. And then what's the net proceeds? You start working that backwards. I think a lot of people think that they're going to have that hundred million or whatever it is to reinvest and to do whatever they plan to do. <laughs> Guess what? It doesn't work that way. It just doesn't. So, oh man, like I, I love it because like I'm laughing because I that is, I'm I'm the quirky entrepreneur, which is why I built our our five principles in the bootcamp because it's like this is like what it's like it's a it's a it, yeah I, I should call it the two by four course. <laughs> yeah. Well, or, you know, every one of you in this room, go through an exercise after you explain enterprise value. I want you to do a quick calculation. Take your EBITDA, apply a multiple that you think is fair, and then and then have a conversation, and then tell everyone in there. Now, I want you to go in and take 20% off that. Now, well, you might be closer. You know? Well, and pay down your debt, well, pay down your debt, then pay your taxes, then pay it. Yeah, all yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, Chris, we got I know I got to uh, be conscious of your time. So this has been a blast. If you were to, you know, leave, you know, you just gave a bunch of takeaways, but if you were to leave, you know, the, the listeners with, you know, Hey, you know, what's two by four, maybe you got a, a couple of one-liners that you would like to leave everybody with. What would it be? You know, I just think for me, um, it was, you know, if you're, if you, once you commit, once you make that decision, your first job is to educate yourself. Don't go into this assuming you understand. Don't go into it based on hearsay and what you think might happen. Ask a lot of great questions, especially in the early stages when you're aligning your resources. Make sure your question to answer ratio is right. Because again, we seem to think we know it all. We've been successful in business. This is a whole new world. So, and then, you know, the other thing is just as I think there's a lot of people that say, hey, I know it's going to be three to five years away. Uh, really have laser focus on those key value drivers. And that's what you're doing with your boot camp and educating people. And I just, I mean, I just encourage people to, to gather as much information and increase their understanding because it will save some grief on the other end and the inevitable two by four to the head for sure. <laughs> I love it. What, what's the, the best way to get in touch with you if people want to reach out? So uh, my, my email is probably best, and that's uh, ccarlson at envisioncompany.com. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I've, I've enjoyed the time.